someone with a language disorder, when you're looking at their behaviours, they can actually look similar. This is a language disorder with nothing else to someone with ADHD. But for the person with ADHD, they're not following the instruction because they've been distracted by everything else or their brain's going a thousand miles an hour. So they're not attending to the instruction. But someone with a language disorder is not understanding the instruction. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. I would love to take a moment to share with you part of a review from a listener named Steph J. Lopez on the Apple Podcast platform. It's called Review for Dopamine Rush. I just found your podcast after a recent ADHD diagnosis. I'm in my late 20s and I definitely didn't believe it at first. But after listening to a couple of your episodes, I feel like my mind has been blown. I feel so validated and I'm starting to realize that all these things I attributed to personality flaws or quirks are a shared experience with many women. From RSD to executive function, hygiene to friendships, I feel less alone and less shame in who I am. Because of your podcast, I've found ways to describe the feelings and thought patterns I have to my close friends and family members. I've cried, laughed, and had a lot of aha moments while listening to your podcast. Thank you for your help. I feel hopeful. Well, thank you, Steph. This is honestly so wonderful to hear, and I'm really grateful for the feedback and the review, and I'm just so glad the podcast has been helping you feel less alone. And, you know, it can be so hard to articulate this journey to the people we care about, so I'm so glad to hear that these conversations have been helping you describe your experiences to friends and family. Thank you again for taking the time to leave a review. I really, really appreciate it. Okay, here we are at episode 115, in which I interview Lauren Ewell. Lauren is a speech pathologist who lives in Sydney, Australia. She supports children and young adults with difficulties in different areas of communication, such as using and understanding language, using clear speech, reading, writing, and social communication. In this role, she has worked with people with various co-occurring diagnoses, most commonly autism spectrum disorder and or ADHD. Lauren believes everyone has a right to a voice, and she's passionate about helping people understand the impact of communication disorders and receive the support they need. Lauren and I talk about the similarities and differences between developmental language disorder and ADHD, and the importance of presumed competence and a strengths-based approach to learning for neurodivergent children. Lauren has always felt different and misunderstood in her life, and suddenly everything made sense when she received her own diagnosis of ADHD earlier this year. Since then, she has endeavored to learn more and understand herself more deeply, and she shares how this journey has made her a better speech pathologist. Enjoy. So, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me all the way from Sydney. I love, love, love this global community of ours and how crazy it is that we have so many shared experiences and yet also so many different experiences, right, that all are kind of rolled into this. So, uh, let's um, get started. And why don't you tell me kind of when you were diagnosed, how old were you and what was going on in your life that really led to the diagnosis? So I've actually only recently been diagnosed. I was diagnosed May this year. And I, I feel like my diagnosis story is like one of those movies that starts like at the end and then it's like a giant flashback. Oh my God, yeah. Because... Because for me, kind of the actual diagnosis stuff happened very quickly, but it was kind of like it was all building and I had no idea it was. So what happened? It kind of happened because so I was working, I'm a speech pathologist and I was working in a private practice at the time. 
And my boss, who I got along really well with, had just finished her master's in clinical psychology. And little did I know, she had just been diagnosed about five months earlier. But I was saying, because at the time I was kind of um, struggling and now I realize it was ADHD burnout, but I was also really concerned with my driving and because my partner was really concerned as well because most of the time I would be absolutely fine and safe and wonderful, but I was just having these lapses in attention where I'd just miss something and we were both really worried about it and a few other things going on. I was just talking to my, just chatting to my boss and mentioning this and she just looks at me and goes, maybe you have ADHD. I went, what? She's like, you sound like me. And because she'd been my supervisor for three years, she was like, actually, this would explain a lot. Because <laughs> she was like, you really struggle getting paperwork done on time. You get distracted quite easily. Like she had to move me into one of the back offices because when I was near reception, whenever someone would come out, I would like go and have a chat or I'd, I'd always be listening. I didn't realize at the time, but I didn't fully understand ADHD. I thought it was that hyperactive boy running around the room because, of course, like, and that's a lot of what I'd seen as um, working with a lot of kids who have ADHD diagnoses. And when I then looked it up and found out about, you know, more inattentiveness, but even that, just how it presents in women and hyperfocus, because the big thing was always it can't be ADHD, you're really good at school because that was never an issue for me. But all the ADHD stuff for me was at home. Yeah, so she made that comment and if it was anyone else, I probably would have gone, okay, but not totally egotistical but also be going, but I'm not like the kids that I work with or things like that. But because it was my boss, I was like, if she's saying this, I definitely have to listen. And then I did the hyper-focused deep dive and was going, oh, my God, this is me. And then within like two, and it also explained, like I said, that flashback, it kind of explained everything that I'd kind of struggled with. I didn't realize it was a struggle. I thought it was normal. I just felt different my whole life. And, yeah, then I booked the appointment two days later and a few days for a few months later I had the appointment with the psychologist and got the diagnosis. It doesn't sound like there was much of a waiting period. It, I feel like that's something we hear so much, especially in countries that have decent healthcare or <laughs> socialized healthcare that it's like, oh, and then, you know, the wait, it was two years or whatever. I'm really, really lucky. The wait was only two months. I was also slightly relentless. I called and called and called and called places. So a lot of places that had close their um, books weren't taking on people for ADHD assessments. They take people on for other types of assessments, but not ADHD. Um, a few had a six-month or an eight-month wait. And I think I was just really lucky that the psych psychiatrist I got in with, he, I have a feeling he might have been actually quite new to the practice and building up a caseload. I'm not sure, but that's what I suspect. And he was also telehealth only, which might have made, you know, other people go elsewhere. But for me, I was like, great, I'm very busy, I'm going all over the place that means wherever I am I can stop and have my appointment <laughs> so no I think I'm incredibly lucky like my brother who um he's in the process of getting a diagnosis at the moment he had about a six month wait so it's usually luckily I haven't heard anyone for two years but I've heard a lot of people struggle to find someone and the six to eight month wait seems to be very common, unfortunately. Yeah, I know, right? It's interesting that they'll see 
they'll see you for other diagnoses, but not ADHD, right? Which is clearly indicates that like it's that it's not a dearth of staffing. It's or time. It's mostly what is it the testing you think or like what's is it the different who's available for the diagnostics or what do you think is going on there? I'm honestly not sure. It might also be, and this is, please say there's no data. This is just my thoughts. I do wonder if it's also like clinical interest of the uh, practitioners as well, because I mean, and I I know this that from my work that there's certain areas that you might want to focus more on. Or maybe there's just too many people and it, everything is getting overloaded. I honestly am not sure. Because, I mean, for me, I was like it was an hour conversation. Um, so I didn't do any assessments. It was just a conversation with the psychiatrist. And then I had the um, diagnosis at the end of it. Yeah. That was my experience, too. I, it was, you know, a half hour conversation with my um, general practitioner, my uh, my doctor. And it's so amazing how different, you know, how many of us come to our diagnosis from diff- different ways in terms of like, sometimes it's a three hour full psych assessment. And, um, you know, and, and, and other times, you know, it's like you, I always joke that like, I walked in the door with all of my paperwork fumbling and was like, eh, and my doctor was like, yeah, you had me at hello. <laughs> right. It's so interesting, too. Like, I think, this idea that what we're ha- what is happening right now in this like boon of diagnoses right so many women especially adult women are coming to um they realize that this is ADHD and that there's this real like this is like you said I love that uh, the metaphor of the movie starting at the end because it really is this profound experience of looking over the whole course of your life this is not women who are just seeing one meme about losing keys and deciding they have ADHD and i think that for the most part this like that there are a lot of mental health professionals, especially who are kind of rolling their eyes and saying like, ADHD is so trendy right now. I don't think it's this. And my, you know, I always want to throw it back there and be like, yes, a lot of people are experiencing this right now and are coming to this realization right now. But if it's not ADHD, what is it? And at the same time, like, it's entirely possible that it was ADHD all along. This is exactly what is happening in, in so many areas, and I, I'm going off on a little tangent here, so stay with me. But like recently, John Oliver was talking about, um, he was talking about gender. I don't know if you saw his episode on gender, but he was talking about how like everybody rolls their eyes. He was talking about this in reference to sort of the non-binary, right? And, and that so many people, and trans and non-binary, and he was talking about like, people roll their eyes, everybody's non-binary nowadays, and oh, it's such a fad, and they're not going to want to stay this way. And he was using the example of left-handedness. And he was like, when in the 1970s or 80s, when teachers stopped forcing children to become right-handed, the number of left-handed people skyrocketed because people were free to use whatever hand they wanted. (laughs) And so you could look at those statistics and say, oh, everybody's left-handed nowadays. Oh my God, it's such a trend. But the reality is the when the information is there, when you're seeing yourself through this new light and you're able to kind of understand that this was ADHD all along, of course, the number of people with ADHD is going to skyrocket. Like it makes perfect sense. And so I'm, I'm so every time somebody rolls their eyes, when you start talking about ADHD, I'm like, nope, like, <laughs> I'm just so frustrated, because I was there too. In the you know, I, I feel like I was also there for a long time being like, what is happening? Is this ADHD? Why are so many of us suddenly realizing it? And I feel like he just used this perfect he he just had this perfect way of, of of demonstrating and explaining like of course when you are able to live in the, your truth right and and you're starting to connect these dots like yes absolutely more of us are going to start realizing that it was this all along entirely and that was definitely my experience and i'm sure it's the experience of most people who listen to this podcast i remember so my partner works from home and my appointment was at the beginning of the day and so I just started work a bit late I remember afterwards I walked in and and I said I have ADHD and he was like why are you smiling this isn't something you should be happy about and I was like no but it's I said I feel like there's a weight on my chest and that I had no idea was there is gone and it's amazing just that one thing 
even before like you know starting any treatments a friend of mine had a really good analogy because you know I've as I'm sure a lot of women that you talk to also have anxiety and was seeing psychologists and doing a lot of work around all of that but I think without realizing it, it was like this piece was missing because I just thought this was anxiety and it just felt like this huge weight and I was like I'm doing all this stuff how can I still feel like this and it's because anxiety was a very small part the rest was ADHD but my friend had this really good analogy she was like it's like all this time you've trying to put a puzzle together without the lid of the box and someone has given you the lid of the box because that diagnosis alone completely I think it gave myself permission to not judge myself and shame myself and I was so much more proactive and to have words for things that I never had before because I didn't know it was a thing like task initiation and like, you know, the internal, cause I'm, yeah, the internalized hyperactivity cause I'm on, I'm the combined subtype and just all this language that I could use to actually say, this is what I need. This is what's happening. That alone, like everyone around me was like, you are like in a, so much sorry in a much better place and this yeah without anything else just that diagnosis alone and like also my relationship because my partner is very neat and orderly and everything has its place and so it would drive him insane that he was like how could you not put it away and I or how could you not clean that and I'd be like I don't know it's like I can't see it is what I was been trying to, but now he was like, I know I really get now you're not doing it on purpose. You're actually trying as much as you can and you can't do this. Oh my God. You've got me so I'm so emotional. You you were giving me goosebumps before uh when talking about it. Cause it's so true, right? It's like you know, this idea that like you see, you know, one thing occurs to you, or when people talk about ADHD like losing keys or you know, oh, a squirrel, that's going to make you not think you have it, right? I'm not going to relate to any of that. I'm not going to relate to that rhetoric. Um, And so it's when you start doing that deep dive and your whole life flashes before your eyes that you start to really see like, oh, okay, this is all of those misconceptions that we have. You're definitely, I mean, it's funny too, because I feel like I've interviewed so many professionals who worked with ADHD children for a long time and still had those preconceived notions in terms of what it looks like. And I, you know, I, I have a son and a daughter and I actually kind of had, I did very poorly in school. And so I had that stereotype too, right? Of like, oh, eight kids with ADHD do poorly in school. And I did poorly in school. And it wasn't until I started interviewing women for the podcast and like one after the other, I was interviewing women who did very well in school. And then in adulthood, they were just a ball of depression and anxiety (laughs) and seeing like, oh, okay, I see how those connect and the perfectionism and then the sort of need to to the masking and all of that and the and the white knuckling and all of that anxiety. And then I looked at my daughter, my teenage daughter, and was like, oh, okay, I see that because she's an honor roll student. She does really well. And so when I, I got her diagnosed and I recently was asking for a 504 because I'm like, that's what you do as a parent, right? You get a 504 for your child. And we were sitting, I was sitting in this room with a bunch of these school administrators and it was like we were speaking a different language. They were like, why are we here? She's an honor roll student who gets 90s. Why are you asking for accommodations? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. Why am I asking for accommodation? Like I had this total moment of like, should I not be here? Should I not be asking for accommodations if she's already quote unquote doing well? And they and I just saw that it was just this like visceral moment of realizing like how misunderstood kids are by their teachers and their administrators who are like, I don't know what you're talking about. They're doing fine. And me being like, they're not fine. They're clearly not fine, but not really understanding what to do in that situation. I'm still processing all of that, but. (laughs) That's really, that's fair. And it reminds me because of course I'm, you know, still relatively early in this journey and reminds me of two things. First one, 
even like before I had the diagnosis, when people would go, oh, you're so organized because I'd have systems and schedules and things, and I'd go, no, 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 I'm actually very unorganized, and if I don't have anything, nothing will get done. And all I'd talk about things at home, and everyone would be like, no. I think even my partner was, like, similar, and then he started to live with me. And he was kind of like, like, oh, my God, like, you're a wreck. Not in those words, but I think he was like, wow. So I think you put a lot of effort in that people don't notice until you're somewhere where it falls apart. But the amount of effort I was putting in really realised it because, again, pure ADHD moment. Had my medication, was still working out the right medication for me. And I was taking it and I wasn't, you know, felt it might have been making a bit of a difference but wasn't sure and totally forgot to, I was like, at the end of the bottle, I need to book a new appointment. <laughs> Six-week wait for the appointment. <laughs> and love that to access treatment for executive functioning requires extra executive functioning. So I had this period where I didn't have my meds and, I was coming home just feeling tired but awful, like just I'd spent so much and I realised I was putting so much extra energy trying to keep everything in my head and all the balls up in the air that I didn't know that that's what I was doing. And I was kind of part of it was like, oh, this is masking or like this is what it is because I would have been very similar to your daughter. I was very, very good academically, went to university, graduated with honours, but I was having to put so much more effort in. And I guess the other thing is with the accommodations is that is looking at it, is that going to take the effort, the that masking an extra effort she's putting in off of her so actually yeah the output they're seeing would be the same but will she actually be feeling a lot better and more herself not having to do that right yeah that's the big question because i think they were kind of looking at it especially the teacher who was in the room was sort of like you know how much she has a 95 what you just you don't you you need accommodation so she can get what 100 and I was like no that's not the point the point is that we're trying to alleviate some of the anxiety and the pressure I'm seeing a very different child than you are and I see a child who if she gets a 75 she has a panic attack and you know and so it was one of those situations where I'm like I want to do whatever I can to make her feel like we're doing something <laughs> to help with the anxiety and they were basically like get a therapist I was like we already have a therapist <laughs> you know but they were basically like these are problems that are not school related so school accommodations aren't going to help you need home accommodations and you need outside accommodations and I was like but all of the anxiety is school related. And and that was, I think was the other disconnect too, communication wise, where I was like, we just, like I said, feeling like we were speaking different languages. I think it's the idea that ADHD is all about academic achievement, but it's about also about the effort and everything you have to do to get there. Exactly. I know, right? It's the same reason why like when my doctor told me I was how hard I was working when I was explaining to her my elaborate system on how I don't lose keys. <laughs> and she was like, wow, you work really, really hard. And then I like burst into tears because I was like, nobody's ever said that, right? And and that's like you said, it was that twofold realization that A, you mean everybody isn't like this? But then at the same time, also then realizing like, oh, right, yeah, I am really working really, really hard to just stay afloat. And and that is, oh, God, it's such, there's so much grief there when you have that realization, right? Where you stop and you're like, oh, I am working so much harder. I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. 
What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference how Help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash women ADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash women ADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. So are there, are there things in your past where you're like, oh, the signs were clearly there all along? Does I'm assuming my whole life doesn't count as an answer. <laughs> um, like a, a friend of mine who's known me for a while, who's studying psychology, and she's has a brother who's um, has ASD and likely ADHD. She sums this up when she turns to me and goes, "How did we not realize that you have ADHD?" Because <laughs> I feel like, yeah, for me, always losing things. The I'd get really into like my school because I hyper focus. I'm re- on study is what I I've always done it because I'm very curious and it's motivating for me. And I'd always be so into it. I would then forget something, or you'd then look at my desk and everything is everywhere. I'd con like interrupting people, having you know five unfinished craft projects in my closet at any given time it's just all these little things that it's kind of like yep no that's ADHD (laughs) that's just but it was always and I think the reason why I just have all these little examples is because it's all this stuff that was always oh that's just Lauren and now it's oh actually no that's Lauren's ADHD Right. Yeah. And and I guess going back to that, why it's so frustrating when people minimize this experience and say like, oh, you saw one TikTok video and now you've decided you have ADHD. And you're like, no, I saw one TikTok video and then I saw another and then I saw another. And then I went into, you know, hyper focus and I did all this research and my entire life flashed before my eyes. Definitely. It's interesting because for me, it was because we've now realized that I think I mentioned, yeah, my brother's in the middle of getting a diagnosis. My mum is um, going to get assessed next year because, like, you know, she, like, wants to have that concrete thing, but we're pretty much, like, you have ADHD. And my mum's 59, and there's so much struggle she has had that she was just, like, had no idea, and now she's like, this makes so much sense. And all this, and all this, like, stuff in different places she's worked of people basically saying, like, you know, you're not trying hard enough or often the paperwork and things like that, that it just, it's so freeing. And the fact that that alone has also changed my parents' relationship, even though they've, you know, been together for, like, 35 years, my dad it's just been that final thing where my dad kind of gets it now. And also when they, they had COVID earlier in the year and dad was brain foggy 
like, and my mum said, this is what it's like for me all the time. And he was like, how do you do it? <laughs> That's why I married you, right? <laughs> Oh, uh, I know it is. Oh, uh, that's so sweet. Oh my God. You're giving me all the feels today, Lauren. Uh, it's so sweet, right? Cause it is like, just think about how much your life changes and, and how much is in front of you in terms of this changed outlook on who you are and how you operate in the world. It's just, uh, it's so wonderful. And, and yeah, it's completely changed my relation, my marriage. It's changed how I am as a parent too. I mean, it's really, yeah, just realizing and, and why so often is I've, I love when uh, I love thinking about how it's been called piece of shit syndrome. <laughs> because I think that, you know, explains so much right about how we view ourselves until we have this diagnosis. And it's like learning to walk all over again. Yeah. And I think for me, the biggest thing is kind of working at, you know, how to manage the anxiety and all of that, because I kind of, I would be given strategies. And then I'd find it really difficult to use those strategies. Like when I did use them, sometimes they'd work. But then I have guilt as in, you know, it's my my fault I'm not sleeping like X, Y, Z because I'm not using the strategies. And that's built up my whole life. It's now taking a lot of effort to kind of go, well, actually, what if it's more all these strategies were made for someone who was neurotypical? And that's not my brain. So, of course, it's not going to work for me. I need to find different strategies. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And maybe those strategies will work this week, but they might not work next week. And that you have to prepare for that as well and have a sense of humor about that as well, I think, also. Right. Which is like um, you get really, really excited about this idea about consistency. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold up. <laughs> that's that's not going to work forever. You need something new and that's kind of part of that's part and parcel, right? It's like you have, you take the good and the bad together. So, okay. So I want to talk about you're a speech pathologist and I'm sure it's also been mind blowing for you to think about the ADHD brain and just some of that overlap. Right. Um, and okay. So, you, so you worked with a lot of kids with ADHD. Let's talk about developmental language disorder and what exactly is it and you know why why is there so much overlap why is it so com why is it such a common comorbidity with ADHD okay so I'll answer as much of this as I can because I think there's also part of this that we have theories there's a lot of correlative talk not a lot of causal talk yeah <laughs> but yeah but there's a few factors in that that I'll get into later but first so I think it's important so the term developmental language disorder is actually quite new. It was 2016, 2017. They had, um, can't remember the name of the study, but I'm happy to give it to you to put it in the um, notes, that basically they realised that everyone was describing the same thing but calling it something different, auditory processing, specific language impairment, expressive receptive language disorder, but we were all kind of describing the same thing. So lots of like therapists and different professionals kind of got together and decided on the term developmental language disorder. And basically what that means is, yeah, language difficulties with no known cause. Because there's certain developmental disorders that have affect the language, well, can as part of the disorder has can have an associated language disorder, like for example, autism, is sometimes it's kind of part of the diagnosis, in which case we would call it language develop sorry, language disorder associated with autism spectrum disorder. But when we don't actually know, like when there's you know, we can't look at the brain and say, oh, yeah, there's nothing else that could be causing a language disorder is developmental language disorder. However, because this is relatively new, you're going to come across a lot of people that don't call it that. They'll still use specific language impairment or different things. So that's kind of the consensus was 
like in the prof- profession internationally, developmental language disorder, but it's, as always, trickling down. You're probably going to hear lots of different terms that really describe the same thing. Like ADD and ADHD. <laughs> exactly. And so in terms of, I guess, what it is, what it, yeah, what do I mean by language difficulty? There's different ways of breaking it down. A lot of people break it down into receptive language, which is understanding language. Um, so that would include understanding an instruction, what words mean, understanding inferences, like understanding jokes, sarcasm, and multi, yeah, multi-part instructions or multi-part stories. How do you follow a story? How do you understand an argument? anything to do with understanding or like you know understanding a conversation and then the using language or expressive language is how do I put my ideas into words knowing what words you can use what words to use when how to structure your ideas how to tell a story how to give a persuasive argument how to um tell jokes how to yeah have that conversation but it's and as I'm sure your brain's already ticking away there's a lot that I've probably said that it's like but ADHD can also cause that difficulty and this is one of the tricky things is that someone with a language disorder when you're looking at their behaviors they can actually look similar this is a language disorder with nothing else to someone with ADHD. But for the person with ADHD, they're not following the instruction because they've been distracted by everything else or their brain's going a thousand miles an hour. So they're not attending to the instruction. But someone with a language disorder is not understanding the instruction. What do you mean by do, we'll do this like do this after you do this. Their language centers just aren't able to break that down. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I'm like, how do you know in the moment diagnostically, which it is, especially when you're dealing with young children? Yeah. And also one of the big red flags is how we know this might be a language disorder is because often kids with language disorders are the class clown or the child with all the behavioural difficulties, which, again, sounds very similar to the red flags to ADHD. One of the upsides is um, it seems that a lot of our language measures um, in the tests that we do to diagnose can actually be quite, and, yeah, I was reading a study last week that can actually be quite effective in telling the difference. Because if you also think of it at the... In a language, when you're doing a language assessment, it's usually a clinical room. It's a small room. There's very minimal distractions. It's one-on-one. And um, I know the policy at the private practice I worked was we're very child-centered. So if that child, as soon as we notice their attention going, we would stop the assessment and book another session. So there are some children that, I did the assessment in like 20 minute chunks because that's how long I could like we, I'd still do like the sensory breaks and the physical breaks, but that's just how long I could get them. And the measures that we're doing, it's what they, we're breaking down what they do say when they are, we're looking at what they understand when their attention is there. So, and look by looking at a lot of the vocab measures, and like I said, a lot of the actual type of tests in language assessments, research has shown that they're actually quite good at that differential diagnosis of ADHD and language. But it's it's still tricky because sometimes you also get someone that will walk into our clinic and I might assess their language and on that standardised measure, they're fine. But then if I look at how they're using language day to day, they're really struggling. Of course, there's a lot more into it. Sometimes there's still like a language disorder going on. 
but sometimes it's kind of like let's just might not have enough to diagnose but let's just do some work to show you how to communicate and I find if that's all the child needs that once you kind of show give them those pieces they sort of take off but um sometimes that diagnosis can also be an ongoing process Mm, that's so fascinating yeah, I, I feel like that's sort of similar with handwriting too, with dysgraphia, right? Which is that idea of like, if my thoughts are, if I'm having a difficulty sort of getting my thoughts to into my fingers to write, and they're going too quickly, and then my handwriting, you know, and then I'm missing word, and so it's like there's so much overlap there in terms of what is actually ends up what you're actually seeing. And what can also happen is sometimes I'll like. A child will come and they'll be like, oh, we're thinking dysgraphia because they're having trouble with their writing. But their handwriting is fine. It's, you can read it really well, but it's actually the breakdown is the language. They don't know how to structure a paragraph. They don't know how to structure a story. They've got these ideas, but they don't know how to communicate that in their language. And so actually it's when, yeah, then, when you see the speech pathologist and because we also can do work on writing and reading and all of that as well and often you know there can be dysgraphia and other things as well and part of this can definitely be part of dysgraphia but sometimes it's actually no this is this is a language disorder but it might be in the way that like some kids you know the day-to-day stuff, they're pretty good, but it's, I guess, what we call the higher-level language skills, which is the harder language skills, like metaphors, structuring, and argument, and that is when the wheels fall off. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this is so fascinating. God, you make me want to, like, go into deep dive about this because i i'm very curious my head i had a, a daughter and a son and my daughter was like hyper verbal from a very early age and she was basically like reciting poetry by the time she was two and my son was nonverbal, nothing until after the age of two he just screamed <laughs> and so we, we he had a speech therapist he we had tested always for his hearing and um and uh, he had a speech therapist for, for years and years and years. And so it's been interesting sort of thinking now having them both diagnosed and sort of all of this knowledge around neurodivergence and, and kind of what is happening and what is firing in the brain. It's so interesting to think back because he was he was also tested for autism because he was very like solo, you know, he played alone and, and a lot of that stuff. So he was tested at the time. And so now I'm kind of like, what what were they not seeing? What were they seeing? Like, it's so interesting to think about oh my God, just the brain, it's, it's so confounding and weird. <laughs> and also I forgot to mention, there was a, which was a systematic review that said that the crossover of developmental language disorder co-occurring with ADHD was between 20 to 90%. Yeah, I believe it. I think part of that discrepancy is also when you look at a lot of the behavior measures for ADHD, they're language-based. For example, I think some of even like the parent parental checklist, how are they with following instructions? Yeah. And things like that. That requires a language skill. So are they not doing it because of the ADHD or language? And another thing is that sometimes I'm not, as familiar with the assessments for, because um, I think a lot of the assessments of ADHD, at least in pediatrics, is more um, teacher and parent report. But I also know that when you look at the, um, I, yeah, so the WISC, I'm assuming it's the same um, in the US, which is one of the um, really popular IQ assessments some of those items are language-based. And this is one of the things that I learned from my boss who, um, or my old boss, who's been a great mentor to me, the boss that's part of the reason why I got diagnosed. Because she's a speech pathologist and a psychologist, she can do a lot of these assessments now. But with that dual 
qualification, she was looking at the scores and sometimes it would come de- come out as like a low IQ or low area, but it's because when you look at the subtests, the one, one, it's, you know, everything would be pretty equal in where they were scoring, but then there'd be two, if you look at the chart, there'd be two um, scores that have scored really, really low. And then, but when you look at those tests, they're the two subtests with no visual supports. It's all language. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that's what happened with my kids when they both did their psych assessment. Uh, my daughter was like scored like, you know, uh, they were it was all percentile, so it was all like, you know, 90 percentile and all of these different things and then auditory processing. She was like 0.055 percentile or something hilarious. Uh, yeah, we we're like, okay, you're you're a, a visual processor. Got it. But also sometimes what my and of course, I have no idea the case um, with your children because I'm not their therapist. But I know some kids that would come through our clinic. We would then look at it, and then you look at the language schools, and you're like, actually, this is because they have an underlying language disorder. It has nothing to do with their IQ. It's language centers because that test was relying on their language skills. And if they have a language disorder, that's going to affect how they. Oh, I know. I'm. You're breaking my brain right now. I'm just like, <laughs> there's just so much to think about. Ah. My main recommendation would be, if you ever have any of these concerns, always try to book, like, even if it's, you know, the six, unfortunately, the six to 12 months wait for a speech pathologist. If you've got access trying to get that assessment and then you can cross it off like whenever I've had a parent that says oh, I don't know if you should come in for an assessment I always go look if you're not sure sometimes it's better to come in and if there's nothing then at least you know but if there is a language disorder or something going on then you've got the information that we can do something mm-hmm. yeah absolutely uh, I find those like Venn diagrams are really helpful too, uh, with a lot of these co-occurring disorders or even just like with ADHD and like, I, I always try to like Google the Venn diagrams for like PTSD and ADHD and OCD and ADHD. I always find them fascinating too. I don't know, something about the visual of the Venn diagram. Yeah, I never thought of that. And after this interview, I'm probably going to go Google Venn diagrams. But <laughs> um, yeah, but the... The tricky thing is, is it's hard to know exactly what, um, like we think there's definitely something genetically linked with all of it. Um, but in terms of, it can also be difficult knowing what the exact, I guess, correlation between, and this would be the same for like dyslexia and dysgraphia, but like, for example, DLD or developmental language disorder and ADHD, because it often falls through the cracks. And for example, like we, and I think you and I both know, we were talking about earlier how ADHD often falls through the cracks. Developmental language disorder is even more so. So I think this is the way in Australia, and I think it's consistent in the US, the estimate is that one in 14 children have developmental language disorder. So if you're talking about a classroom of 30, that's two children in every classroom. And, but no one knows about it. No one talks about it and they're not diagnosed. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. I feel like that's I feel like ADHD is sort of one of those things, sort of like the iceberg, where there's all of these various presentations and you'll get diagnosed with something and be like, that's the answer. This is what it is. It was dyslexia all along, right? Or, oh, it's this, it was, you know, it was anxiety all along. And you kind of hold on to these identities around these diagnoses and not realizing that the iceberg was ADHD and that, you know, it was all of these things. Surprise. (laughs) But I think, you know, it's when you're in that state of sort of confusion, like many of us are, like, what is this? What's wrong with me? And then you can kind of glom onto an answer really quickly. We have a tendency to do that. And especially when we're talking about parents and kids, right? Which is like, oh, this is it. 
And then you realize that like, oh, no, surprise, there's a whole lot more under here. Also, like, I can't, I don't think you can, I'll ever fully get what that position is like until I am a parent of, it's one thing going through it for yourself, but trying to go through it with your child or for your child, I just, that would just be a whole different experience that's just extra, I imagine, extra overwhelming and extra anxious. And like I said, I I say I imagine, I don't think I will ever fully get it unless I'm in that position. Well, and I think it's so, you know, it's so entertaining to me that so many women come to their ADHD diagnoses through their kids, right? Because they desperately want to help their children. And so they go into hyper-focus mode and then they start researching, like, what is, how can I help them? How can I do absolutely, you know, 150% and they just go into hyperdrive. And then that's when they're like, oh, right, this explains my life a lot. I I see a lot of myself in this and realizing, you know, and then they start connecting the dots. It's so much easier to do when you're helping your child instead of helping ourselves, which I think says a lot. I think that, you know, says a lot about just the state of overwhelm a lot of the time when it comes to our mental health and everything else. (sighs) When I was diagnosed with ADHD, it completely turned my world upside down. I looked back at so much of my life, my grades in school, my multiple careers and hobbies, my friendships, my marriage, motherhood, my relationship with food and my body, like all of this with a new lens. And it was overwhelming to say the least. If you've been diagnosed with ADHD and you're feeling blown away by this new insight into your brain and how it operates, I totally understand. I can help you begin to sort through this chaos, explore who you are and how your brain operates so you can finally start to lean into your strengths and begin to use them to your advantage moving forward. Together, we can work to identify what obstacles you've been facing and create strategies to help you start living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. Head over to womeninadhd.com coaching to book a 30-minute initial consult with me so we can figure out if my brand of one-on-one coaching is right for you. Again, that's womenandadhd.com slash coaching, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. How would a parent know what's developmentally appropriate and what might be a sign, like what, what, what might be like a telltale milestone or 
where you could say this is definitely outside of the Venn diagram? So it, that question can be tricky to answer because it's different for all ages. Yeah. Um, okay. But if you look at a lot of the associate, um, I'll talk broadly because I know that you've got an international audience, for example, in Australia. Um, but uh, most countries have their, um, have a speech and or hearing association. So in the US, you have ASHA, um, which is amazing. And I also use their resources, even though I'm down here. And uh, a lot of, and in Australia, we have Speech Pathology Australia. A lot of those websites break it down for all the different ages, how many words they should have, how they're following instructions. Um, and um, that can be a really good tool to use because the other thing is I feel I also feel like there is more resources or people usually more aware of a smaller chart. So, like, for example, by around 18 months, you'd be hoping somewhat like a child is saying between 20 to 60 words, and by two, they're definitely starting to combine words and put them into sentences. Um, and I do, whilst that can still be overwhelming, I feel like people have a better idea with that than when they're older. And I think the big thing is if they're taking, if it's effortful for, for a school-aged child, can definitely talk about milestones um but i feel like the big things is if they're getting really frustrated and it's really effortful and hard like you know and they're having to put extra effort into understanding what the teacher's saying or the page is blank because they haven't written anything or when they're starting to avoid work tasks it's kind of like, okay, is something else going on here? Because I feel like often it kind of, there's can be so many answers to that question. Because, you know, it can, just everything we're saying before, it can be ADHD, it can be anxiety, can just be like, you know, not being bored. But I find, I think, and again, this is, I'm talking purely from experience, I find actually if a child's really starting to get really frustrated and really avoid, it's usually because it's just really, really hard for them. Mm-hmm. And it's worse thing if there's a reason. Right. And then, yeah. Or if they're like my son, where they were just screaming all the time out of frustration, <laughs> which was a really difficult time. I can imagine. I really can imagine. And that's because um, my so everything I'm talking about, my current job is actually at a school for children with um, disabilities, and a lot of the children we have are nonverbal, mm-hmm. and they're just so frustrated. But giving them a way to communicate, because like is it's just life changing. Like if you think of not being able to, like, we communicate in everything we do. It has a huge, and also how we assess, how we access therapies usually based on verbal skills, how we access education is based on verbal skills and reading and writing. It's all through language and communication skills. How we connect with other people, conversations, friendships, all of that. A lot of it all starts with communication. So that's why we often get this flow effect when a child is having a communication difficulties. It affects just about all aspects of their life. And there's also a lot of study, studies, and I think this is international, that a lot of people in jails and juvenile um, detention centers have undiagnosed language disorders. God, it's so amazing that you have this dual perspective too. Cause I think about like working with children with, with, um, other disabilities who might be nonverbal, like to real, it's, it's all coming down to this same logic, right? Which is this the same idea of like this method 
isn't working. So we let's figure out what is working. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. And, you know, and I think some of that, especially, you know, um, um, I imagine having somebody who would be nonverbal well into, are you thinking about some of the, like, there was a viral clip about a nonverbal valedictorian at a university recently where they were giving the valedictory speech through like an AI. And it was that same idea, right? Of like how people just sort of assume that there's something wrong with you or that you're not smart if you're not verbal and kind of realizing that it always really comes down to like, we need to figure out what is the method of communication that's going to work for you. And I feel like there's a lot of parallel there with any kind of issue about neurodivergence, right? And and this idea of like, stop trying to force something that's not going to work for you. So it's so wonderful that you've got this multifaceted perspective. Yeah. And in especially special education, we often talk about the idea of assumed competence or the least dangerous assumption assume that someone can do it or like yet which one is least dangerous assuming they can do the thing or that they can't do the thing and like for example I had a really exciting really exciting moment a few moments actually at work this last week where there was this um eight nine-year-old non-verbal and the teacher and I are sitting going we actually think he's really switched on but the most verbal he could be was he'd grunt. But like he could get his point across. Like he knew he understood and he'd and I had an AAC device and I put it in front of him. And usually I have to teach them how so sorry, AAC is a way to communicate that's not based on verbal speech. So like if you think Steve like that valedictorian speech is a really good example. It's a way to communicate usually involving technology but not always, that isn't talk, like speaking verbally. And so and there's so many different devices out there that you kind of, it's always finding the best, best fit. Anyway, um, we try this and I put it in front of this child and usually I have to teach them how to use it, but he was automatically pushing my hand away and exploring it himself. And because um, in the U.S., do you guys have morning circles sometimes at the beginning of the day? Yeah. So, yeah, like that routine. And that's when we did it because the teacher was like, he's bored in morning circle. And I think it's because, you know, he can't engage. It would be great if that's when we try using this. And so I'm sitting next to him. The only word I had shown him where it was on the device was morning circle. Within 20 minutes of him just exploring, he pipes out, no one likes morning circle, bye. (laughs) And we were just going, oh, my God, like, because if we didn't think he could do that, just put that in front of him, he never would have been, like, you would have assumed, because often people probably would assume, oh, yeah, like, you know, whatever, because he just you know, walks around points and grunts. But he's actually very cheeky, very switched on. Yeah. And it's, but it's, again, it's the same for even, and I really like that you pointed this out, it's the same vein for even like the children with ADHD and developmental language disorder in a mainstream school. I've had so many children say to me, I'm stupid. And I'm going, no, you just, your brain thinks about language differently. Right. I love that idea. Assume, always assume competence, right? Like I felt like that was the same idea of like, always assume your child wants to succeed and figure out how you can help them get there as opposed to just immediately assuming that they don't want to be there or they don't want to do well. Like everyone wants to do well. And so if they don't want to do well, they've probably given up trying and they, you know, and that's so tragic. So I I love that idea of like, always assume absolute competence, especially in children, right? Oh my goodness. You're making me so emotional. Oh, Lord, this is so incredible. God, I, I want to be mindful of the time, but I feel like I could pick your brain for so much longer. You're such a, oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for this perspective. I really, really appreciate it. I think this is going to be quite, I mean, for a parent who might be struggling with a young child like I was, oh, my goodness, um, uh, this will be so interesting and fascinating. Uh, so quickly, 
do you have another name for ADHD if you could call it something else? Did you did you prepare something? Um, I kind of have. So trying to be mindful of the time so easy for me to keep talking. So for ages I thought I would get rid of the the disorder because I don't like that it implies that something's wrong. But I also, as we we're talking about before, so often when I'm if especially if I'm giving a language diagnosis, I'll, you know, say the term like developmental language disorder, but what I'm describing it, I'll basically say this just means that, like I said before, the child's brain thinks about language differently. So to me, it, different is the biggest, it's better or difficulty, but I don't, I think it's really important that we know that ADHD is a different, it's not on the spectrum of neurotypical, it's different again, because I know for me it just seems like it kind of undercuts my experience when people are like, oh, but everyone's a bit like that, or, you know, that's really common. But it's like, no, no, this is another thing. So I think for me, I probably at the moment leave the disorder, but I probably you'll probably call it like, you know, executive function disorder or executive functioning difference because it's much bigger than the attention. And that's part of the reason why I, I think for me it didn't it went undiagnosed because it's like, but Lauren but Lauren can focus really, really well. Yes, I can on one thing <laughs> when I'm motivated. But um, it's everything else that goes along with that or the other executive functions. Right. Yeah. So well said. And and I think so many of us who dismissed the idea of it, even when we did know that, it, you know, even if somebody suggested like it's my therapist suggested to me I had ADHD and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's ridiculous. Like I was kind of offended. Um, so, yeah. Right. That's so important. Um, I like that. I saw a tweet recently that's been really helping me, which is like, somebody's like, oh, everybody, everybody loses their keys. And, and the response was like, yeah, and everybody has to go to the bathroom, Janet. But if you have to do it 90 times a day, you might uh, want to get that checked out. <laughs> and I, was like, yes. right? I relate to that so much. I know. So I'm like that. I feel like that's been helpful for me. Whoever wrote that tweet, shout out. I don't remember where I saw it, but, um, or who, who wrote it, but I'm like, if that could, maybe that'll be helpful for somebody else who's struggling with this idea of like, you know, cause I think a lot of us do struggle with that idea of like, how much am I struggling? Right. Um, well, thank you. You don't know what it's like for other people. Right? You only know your experience. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so, so much for sitting down with me and sharing not only your story, but your wisdom too. I really, even just your diagnosis perspective was so great. I was feeling, I feel like I got a lot out of this. So I know a lot of people will. So thank you so much, Lauren. Absolute pleasure. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much, and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one -on -one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. <music>